Well, if you didn't already know uh, that Nelson Mandela died this week. I don't know how you could not know that if you were paying attention to the news. Uh, it, it, the, the news of his death just seemed to immediately circle the globe. It immediately riveted attention. I had, I had uh, family and friends kind of texting me right away. Did, did, did you hear? Nelson Mandela just died. You know, within, within hours of his death, the, the process of, of evaluation, of, of retrospect on his life and legacy had begun. Uh, lots has been written about Nelson Mandela, of course, over the years. But, but it is very hard uh, in, in the middle of the story of a great man's life it's hard, actually, to, to, to see past the, the details, the, the specifics of the moment, to, to really be able to back up and get the big picture of his life. Now that he's passed from the scene, we can begin to put Mandela's legacy into perspective. And I, and I don't know what you think of Mandela. Uh, you, you may be way too young to have any real opinion of Nelson Mandela at all. You, you may be too old to think of him as anything other than potentially a communist and a, and a pawn in a Cold War game. If you're my age, it is hard to think of him as anything other than a hero. But regardless of what you think of him, the process of figuring him out, of really setting his legacy into perspective, has begun. Now, of course, toward the end of his life, Mandela published his autobiography. This was about a, about a decade ago, give or take a few years. And, and in his autobiography, we get his own perspective on his life. I think it's a, it's a perspective that is very much revealed in the title that they gave his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom. You see, Nelson Mandela didn't see himself merely as a freedom fighter, he saw himself as someone who persevered for freedom, who, who was faithful over the long haul in that search for freedom. As we near the end of 2 Samuel, which we have been studying all fall, we now leave the, the kind of chronological narrative behind. And in chapters 21 to 24, the last four chapters of the book, we are given a very carefully constructed retrospect and evaluation on the life and the reign of David. But in our chapter this morning, chapter 22, a chapter that is almost identical to Psalm 18, we're given not the evaluation of of, of, the, of the author we're, we're, uh, of 2 Samuel. We're given not the, the evaluation, as it were, you know, the journalists who are, who are looking on. No, we're, we're given the evaluation of David by David himself. Now, now it's not in the form of an autobiography like, like Long Walk to Freedom. No, it's, it's a poem. It's poetry. Uh, but it's not just any poetry. This, this is a theological commentary in poetic form, on David's life, by David himself. Now, that's not entirely unusual in the ancient Near East. 
uh, ancient Near Eastern kings liked to compose poetry about themselves. There are lots of examples of it out there. Uh, if David had been a typical ancient Near Eastern king, it would have been a long song boasting of his greatness, of all that he had done, of what a great king he was. But as I hope you've seen as we've gone through 2 Samuel, David was no ordinary ancient Near Eastern king. There's a boast here in chapter 22. But David's boast is in God, not himself. And in God's persevering faithfulness, God's long walk with David. So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22. If you're using one of the Bibles we've, we've provided, that's found on page 509. 509, if you're not used to getting around in a Bible. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22. I'm going to read really just the first verse. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Okay, right there we get the historical context of this chapter, of this, of this poem, this song, this psalm that, that David wrote. It is a song of thanksgiving to God at the end of his life. After God has delivered him from all of his enemies and specifically after God had delivered him from the hand of Saul. But we also need to understand that this is not just a song of thanksgiving. If, if that's all it were... I, I think we could, we could relate to it very easily because many of us could point to things that, that God has delivered us from personally, ways in which God has helped us personally. And, and we give thanks to God. But, but there's something else going on here in this chapter. This is not just an, any man's song of thanksgiving. This is a royal song. It's not written for everyone. Right? It's a song, but it's not a pop song. You know how pop songs work, right? Pop songs are written generically enough that as we're listening to them on the radio, we can just immediately kind of find ourselves in the song and relate to it directly. This is not a pop song of thanksgiving. This is a royal song of thanksgiving, which means it is specifically about the king and the king's God. If I could sum up what is the, the longest poem attributed to David in the Bible, if I could sum up this longest of David's poems in a single sentence, it would be this. God rescued his anointed king so that through the king's reign, God would be praised among the nations. That's what chapter 22 of 2 Samuel is about. God rescued not everybody somebody in particular, his anointed king, so that through the king's reign, the king's God would be praised among all the nations. That, that's the point of chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. Now, the chapter breaks down, and we're going to read it. The chapter breaks down into three sections. In verses 2 to 20, we get the reason for David's praise. The reason for David's praise. Then in, in verses 21 to 30, verses 21 to 30, we get the reason for David's rescue. The reason for David's rescue. And then in verses 31 to 51, we're given the reason for David's reign. The reason for David's reign. Now, if you're taking notes, that's the outline. 
sort of. The reason for David's praise, the reason for David's rescue, the reason for David's reign. But if we're going to understand what this chapter is all about, if we're really going to understand this song, and if we're going to be able to make any use of it for ourselves, we're actually going to need to work through those three things, praise, rescue, reign, three times. We're going to walk through this psalm three times. We're going to walk through it first in terms of what did it mean for David? But then second, we need to understand what does this song mean for Jesus? When we put this song on the lips of Jesus, how do we understand it? And then only finally and third, what does this song mean for us? So instead of telling you that I've got a nine-point sermon... What I want you to appreciate and feel is that you've got a three-point sermon, but each point has three subpoints. I'm not going to talk about subpoints again. All right? We're going to talk about David, we're going to talk about Jesus, we're going to talk about us. Let's start with David. Look at verse two. Verse two. He, that is David, said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. From violent men, you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies, bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The reason David looks back over his history, over his long life, and gives praise to God is not because of how great David has become. Now, the reason that David praises God is because God has rescued him from death. You you see there in in those first few verses, David refers again and again to God as his rock, as his fortress, as his refuge. And, And of course, throughout David's long life, particularly as his enemies were pursuing him, he had occasion again and again to flee to a literal rock out in the desert, a literal stronghold and refuge. But here, David declares that it wasn't a rock that was my refuge. It was God who was my refuge. God rescued me. He rescued me from death. Beginning in verse 5, he piles up the images of his distress and danger. Death, 
destruction, the grave, death again, threatened to overwhelm him. Now, he's not talking about different things there. When, when he refers to, uh, there, there in, verse, in verse 5, the waves of death, but then the torrents of destruction, and then the cords of the grave, and then back to the, the snares of death, he's not talking about different things. He's talking about one thing. This is a great example, and you see it throughout this psalm, of Hebrew parallelism. In English, when a poet wants to, to make his poem rhyme and give structure to his poem through rhyme, well, we do that through sound. We, we rhyme by picking words that sound alike. They didn't do that in Hebrew. Uh, David is rhyming here, but he's not rhyming through sound. He's rhyming through sense, through meaning, through, through synonyms piled up. And it's clear that he is not thinking of a single crisis, like one event in which his life was in danger. No, he's, he's looking back over his entire life, from Goliath to Saul to Ishbosheth to the Philistines to Sheba to his own son, Absalom. Actually, when you, when you step back and consider David's life, it feels like his whole life was lived on the cusp of death. But instead of complaining to God at the end of his life for what a hard life God had given him, David praises God. Because when David cried out to God, God heard him, verse 7. And then God delivered him, verses 8 to 20. Now the language of God's deliverance there in verses 8 to 20 might kind of strike you as over the top even for poetry, and we know poetry typically goes over the top, but this is really something here. David, David paints a picture of, of God coming to rescue him, and he talks about, about earthquakes and, and storm clouds, of, of mountains shaking, of, of lightning bolts being hurled from heaven, of, of God rushing in on a chariot of the wind and of cherubim. When in fact, I mean, we've read the narrative. We've, we've now, over the last couple of years, worked through 1 Samuel and now 2 Samuel, and, and we know, in fact, historically what happened. David hid in a cave, and Saul didn't find him. David dodged a spear. David benefited from some really bad advice that was given to his enemies. David fought a bunch of battles. I mean, that's fairly prosaic stuff. But what I want you to understand here is that David is not indulging in a, in a nostalgia that has now grown to, to mythic proportions. I mean, we do that all the time, right? I mean, Christmas especially. When I think back to Christmas as a little boy, I mean, I, I remember walking into this room and there's this giant tree. I mean, trees were bigger back then. And, and, and the presents, the presents like filled the whole room. It was, there were so many, you could, it was hard to find space to walk into the room. Parents always gave more presents a long time ago. Yeah, that's nostalgia. That's memories growing to kind of mythic proportions. That's not what David is doing here. No, David is making a very serious, a very important point. He's making the point that when God delivered him, it was not as a private citizen, as as, as just a, a single individual, but that God has come to deliver him as the anointed king who represents the chosen nation. The images that, that David has picked here 
are drawn explicitly from Exodus 15 and Moses' song about God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt and through the Red Sea and from Exodus 19 as God descended on Mount Sinai to enter into a covenant relationship with his people. The point here is that in God's deliverance of David, God was intervening as the Lord of the covenant. He was coming as the great king who keeps all of his promises to his people. And what David is declaring is that God was faithful to his people by being faithful to his people's king. To David, who represented the people. David stood for the people in their distress. And God had rescued him. David understood that. This was more than just a a private salvation. All right. The reason for David's praise was God's rescue of him as king. And right there, just just quick aside, right there, when when we see that, we begin to understand why I can't just move directly from David to me. I want to teach you all a little bit this morning about how to read the Old Testament, how to read Old Testament poetry. You see, if God is rescuing David, not just as an individual, but as king, then I can't just go, oh, look, God rescued David, God will rescue me, because I'm not king. I know some of you think I act that way, but I know that I am not really king, and so I can't move straight from David to me. The reason for David's praise was God's rescue of him as king. But that leads us, second, to the reason for David's rescue. The reason for David's rescue. Look at verse 21. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord turns my light, my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. All right, you understand what David's saying here. According to David, God rescued him because he was righteous. That's what David says. He doesn't say it just once. He says it again and again. We're back to that Hebrew parallelism. But you just can't escape it. David says that God rescued him because he was righteous. And right away, we feel uncomfortable. As one commentator put it, how could a man with Uriah's blood on his hands and Uriah's wife in his bed, even begin to imagine that God has rescued him because he was righteous. What we need to understand is that in using this language here in these verses, David is not claiming that he was sinless. David is not claiming that he was sinless. Righteous, pure, not turning aside, These are covenantal terms. They are terms that the Old Testament uses to explain what what, what the relationship between two parties in a covenant is, is all about. David, in using this language, is not asserting that he had no sin. What he's asserting 
is that he was faithful to the covenant. He was faithful to the covenant. In, in a way, in the, in the same way that, that those of us who are married can talk about the way we have been faithful to our marriage vows. That, that's a covenant. We've been faithful to our marriage. Does that mean that we're claiming that we've never sinned against our spouse? No. It means that we've kept only unto our spouse. That we've not turned aside. That we've not broken the, the covenant relationship. This is what David is asserting. That he was faithful to the covenant with Yahweh, with the Lord. And he's doing so in contrast to Saul's unfaithfulness. You remember way back in, in 1 Samuel, the Lord rejected Saul because Saul turned away from the word of the Lord. As Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15, and he's speaking to Saul here, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now in contrast, and the whole narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel has tried to make this point. In contrast, David submitted himself faithfully to the word of the Lord. And we can point to all sorts of examples. He refused to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, Saul. He faithfully executed the Lord's judgment against the Amalekites when Saul refused to do so. David refused to try to manipulate the Lord by by carrying the Ark of the Covenant into battle and so kind of trying to force God's hand. We even saw how David accepted the word of the Lord when it came to him in judgment and in chastisement, he submitted to that word. As David said to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 26, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. And as David looks back on his life, he says that's exactly what God did. Because David was faithful to the covenant, God was faithful to him. And rewarded his covenant righteousness with a deliverance from all of his enemies. And once again, what we need to understand here is this is in his capacity as king. David is standing for the nation. Representing the nation. What was God's purpose in all of this? What was so important about David and his reign that God would bother to rescue him and reward him at all, especially given his personal failures? And they were many. And as we looked at First and Second Samuel, we've, you know, we've seen them. The author doesn't try to hide them from us. What was the purpose for all of this? Look in verse 31 as we think about the reason for his reign. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He's a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory. You stoop down to make me great. 
You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of my people. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know are subject to me, and foreigners come cringing to me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, the rock, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From violent men, you rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Boys, we read through these final verses in the psalm. We see that God didn't just rescue David. Yeah, yeah, he did that. He, he rescued David. But he didn't just rescue David. God exalted David. Everywhere David turned... David was the head of nations. People he didn't know bowed down to him. He was made great by God. And as David looks back over his life, and as he he reviews his own exalted status, David sees that the reason for his reign was that God be exalted was that God might might bring praise and glory to himself through David's reign. That's the point there of uh, really verses 33 all the way down to 50. And it breaks breaks down into two different different parts. How did David's reign bring glory to God? Well, first, God used David to bring judgment on the enemies of God's people. Verses 33 to 43. David brought judgment on the enemies of God's people. Really here we're looking at God's rescue of David, but we're looking at it from the other perspective because David's rescue also meant his triumph. And who was he triumphing over? Well, he was triumphing in battle over those that sought to oppress God's people, to to enslave them. But second, David's reign brings praise to God because it brings praise to God among the nations. That's the point of verses 44 down to 50. See, it's, it's not just that, that Israel was blessed by David's reign. The reputation and fame of God has been exalted amongst the nations through the triumph of God's anointed king. Those nations that knew nothing of God now know something about him. That he is greater than their false gods. That, that he alone is to be exalted. That, that he is triumphant. And that is a blessing to know. For for to be left in the dark, to be left in ignorance about God, is to be left in the curse. But to be brought into a knowledge that, that Israel's God, that Yahweh is the only God, is the great God, is the high king of heaven, that is to be blessed. 
Now, now it's, it's hard for us to appreciate that, I think, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, partly because this imagery I- I involves, involves gruesome battles and judgment. We don't like to think about that. And also because we've all, in one way or another, been trained to be very, very you know, respectful of, of other people's religions and of, of other people's beliefs. And so we, we don't naturally like to think about the superiority of our beliefs over other people's beliefs. But, but I do think we understand this, not so much in the world of religion. We understand it, though, in the world of sports. Right? I know all of you guys have been watching football lately, both professional football and, and college football. And, uh, of course, everybody is wondering, well, okay, maybe not everybody, but I and maybe some of you are wondering who's going to play Florida State University in the national championship game. And uh, I, I'm, personally, I'm rooting for Auburn. But that's, that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, the thing that's going to happen, regardless of who plays in that game against Florida State University, the thing that's going to happen next year, and we all know this, is applications for admission to Florida State University and to, let's just say, Auburn, they're going to go up. More people from outside of Florida are going to apply to go to Florida State University next year than this year. And, and more people are going to apply to go to Auburn University from out of Alabama than did this year. Why? Because they won. They're winners, right? They triumphed. They triumphed in something that's important to us, even though at the end of the day, it's actually quite trivial. Nevertheless, it's very important to us. And, and because of that triumph, the fame of Florida State spreads abroad. The, the, the fame of Auburn spreads abroad. So it is here with God. The fame of God was spread among the nations because of David's triumphant reign. Here's really part of the significance of David's repeated declaration that God is the rock. Uh, Of course, we we understand that. That's how how I began. He, again and again, fled to a rock out in the wilderness, a a literal stronghold and refuge. And and he's acknowledging that, that God is really that rock. But there's so much more going on than just his personal experience here. David is quite deliberately borrowing that phrase from Moses' song in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where Moses describes the God of Israel as their rock, a rock that Israel has forgotten and rejected. And yet Moses declares their rock, that is the rock of the nations, the gods of the nations, their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. You see what's going on here? Through David's reign, the supremacy of God has been displayed. And this is the reason for that reign. And not just his, Because as David concludes there in verse 51, the story's not over. God's faithfulness is not just to him. It is also to his descendants, literally his offspring forever. Now, if it weren't for that last verse there in verse 51, 
that God's kindness, that his hesed faithfulness is to David and his offspring forever. If it weren't for that last verse, it might be that this whole, ch- this whole chapter is nothing more than a kind of interesting history lesson that we might be able to draw some, some moral lessons from. But David remembers that his praise, his rescue, and his reign is not the end, It is just the beginning of a promise that God made to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. A promise that his offspring would sit on his throne, would build a house for God's name, would rule over God's kingdom and God's people forever. That promise, if we were to carry on in the narrative into 1 Kings, that promise would begin to be fulfilled with Solomon. But ultimately... That promise and this chapter finds its fulfillment in David's greatest offspring, Jesus Christ. John Calvin observed that much of this song agrees better with Christ than with David. So I want us to go back through the song again, a second time, and see how how that's true. How this chapter is not just about David, that points to David's greater son, points to Jesus himself. First, there's the rescue. All right, so we're now on big point two, sub point one, just for you note takers. First, there's there's the rescue, the reason for praise. From his birth and throughout his ministry, Jesus faced opposition and the threat of death. I I mean, it begins right away, right? Herod trying to kill him even as a little baby. Just like David, Jesus faced the threat of death. But unlike David, he didn't just face its threat. He experienced death itself. And so also unlike David, it was not simply at the hands of his enemies that death came. No, death came to Jesus as the express will of God the Father. For God had determined that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, Jesus would die as the King, representing his people, bearing their sin, dying in their place. Friends, this is typical of the pattern as we move from the shadow of the Old Testament to the reality of the New Testament, as we move from the shadow that is David to the reality that is Christ, it gets bigger. It gets grander. David faced the threat of death. Jesus died. He walked right into death and experienced it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus cried out to be delivered from drinking this cup that God had prepared for him. But, but after asking to be spared this cup, what did he declare? He declared, not my will, but yours be done. And then on the cross, when, when others mocked him and, and challenged him to, to prove that he was the king by saving himself and coming down from the cross, he refused. And instead he prayed again to his father Into your hands, I commit my spirit. So what do we make of that? Did did God hear David's prayer but 
but didn't hear Jesus' prayer? Not at all. For we know as the story goes on, what happens three days later, three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead, delivering his servant, his son, his king, not from dying, but from death itself forever. God raised Jesus with the life of the the new creation, the, the kingdom life, a life that would know no end. And God did this, why? Because God was faithful to his covenant with David. You know, those who watched Jesus die thought that his death on that cross, an accursed death, meant that God had rejected him. Nothing could be further from the truth. As Paul declared in Acts chapter 13, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us by raising up Jesus. As it was written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead declared with power that God keeps his promises. Just as he kept his promise to Israel by delivering their first king, David, so God kept his promise to his people by delivering the anointed king from death itself, Jesus Christ raised from the dead, thus showing that the king, the anointed king that God is committed to delivering is Jesus and none other. You know, we so often talk about the resurrection as proof that God accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And and that's true. When Jesus died on the cross, he suffered a a sacrificial death. He was representing us. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. And so we talk about the resurrection as as proof that God accepted the sacrifice. But but friends, the, the resurrection proves that and so much more. It proves, in light of this chapter... Jesus is the king. Jesus is God's anointed king whom God is committed to delivering. And if he's the king, then he has a claim on our lives to rule over us. It's when we turn to the reason for Christ's rescue, the reason for his rescue from death, that we see just how much better this chapter fits Jesus than it did David's. If David could say in a relative sense, in a a covenantal sense, in the same way that you and I talk about our marriages, that, that the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. Well, friends, Jesus Christ can say that, not relatively, but absolutely, right down to the last detail of his life. Jesus Christ was not merely faithful to the covenant, He fulfilled it. He fulfilled every last command of the covenant, every last law, every last requirement. He not only kept the covenant as king and representative, he kept the covenant as a second Adam, personally obedient to every detail. As the scriptures tell us, he was tempted in every way. And yet he was without sin, and and not just the big sins, but the little sins, every sin. The the scriptures tell us that that on the last day, we're going to have to give an account of every last word that came from our mouths. Oh, my goodness. I mean, maybe you were feeling pretty good about yourself this last week, but let's just like 
let, let's dial in a little, a little closer, right? Let, let's, let's get into the details of every last word. Now, how are you feeling, right? Jesus is feeling fine. Every last word. Perfect. Without fault. Jesus led a blameless life in thought, in word, and in deed. Here's why death could not hold Jesus. It had no claim on him. Death is the penalty for sin. It's what we all deserve, and unless Christ comes back first, it is what all of us will experience. We will experience the death of our bodies, but not Jesus. He did not deserve to die. And though he submitted to that death, though his body did die, it wasn't justice that killed him. No, it was his love that led him to lay down his life. What what, what justice demanded was that he be raised from the dead. As Peter declared on the day of Pentecost, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus, you see, had done what Adam failed to do. Jesus had done what what Israel failed to do. Jesus did what even David failed to do. He lived a perfect life in perfect relationship with God. And friends, he did it as the king, which means that he represented God's people not only in his death, but he represents God's people in his life, in his righteousness, in his blamelessness. Jesus Christ has defeated death through the power of a sinless life. And that leads us to understand the reason for his reign. We've looked at the reason for his praise We've looked at the reason for his rescue, now the reason for Christ's reign. David brought glory to God by defeating the enemies of God's people with God's help. But but friends, we've read the narrative. David's enemies, the enemies that David defeated were merely human beings. Merely the, the surrounding nations that wanted to oppress God's people, that wanted to enslave God's people in body. The real enemies of God's people are not flesh and blood, as the New Testament makes ever so clear. The real enemies of God's people are sin and Satan and death, which mean not merely to enslave your bodies, but to enslave your souls and to murder them. Friends, this is who Christ has defeated through his reign. A reign that began on the cross as he was crowned with the crown that we deserve, but that he bore willingly. A reign that continues today as he is exalted to the right hand of God the Father and a reign that will go on forever, a reign that will know no end. David could bend a bow of bronze. Friends, Christ bends the bow of God's justice. David pursued his enemies without mercy. Friends, Christ has shown no mercy to sin and to death. But he's defeated them in single combat. David's enemies turned their backs in flight. Jesus Christ, according to Colossians, disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
What's more, he didn't just do it for the Jews. He didn't just do it as an ethnic king. In Romans chapter 15, which we heard earlier, the Apostle Paul points to these verses, specifically verse 50, to explain that God kept his promise to the Jews to send a Messiah so that the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy. That that wasn't a new idea. As God had promised to Abraham, as he had promised to David, through their offspring would come blessing to the entire world. Jesus, you see, is not just a Jewish king. He's not an ethnic savior. Jesus is Lord over all. And he saves all that come to him. You, you realize, I mean, it, it's, it's Sunday and it's Sunday morning for us. Well, okay, it's just crossed over into Sunday afternoon, but we're barely into Sunday afternoon. And it feels like the day is still just getting going. But you realize we're at the end of the world's day, right? We're, we're, we're bringing up the rear here in the, in the far west. You realize that today, all around the entire globe, the world has been praising Jesus. While, while we were still asleep, believers in China were getting up to sing praise to Jesus, the rock, the savior. Believers across Asia were, were, were getting up and singing praises to God. Believers in northern India and in southern India, believers in the Middle East, across Turkey, into Europe, were praising Jesus. Throughout the African continent, believers were praising Jesus. And now, finally, we get to add our voice to the chorus. The Lord Jesus is king over all and has received praise this day and will receive praise forever from all. Which brings us to our third pass through the psalm, through through this chapter. And what does this have to do with us? Friends, do you have any reason to praise God this morning as your rock? Do you have any reason to praise God this morning as your rock? Well, well, let me ask you, I mean, what, what do you need to be rescued from? Sin, exactly. But you know, most of us don't come with sin on our minds. That's the, kind of the problem, right? Well, uh, we, we come with other, with other big problems on our mind, uh, other, other big messes in our lives, other distresses. And they're, and they're big. They're, they're things that we can't handle. They're, they're broken relationships. Death of a loved one. Divorce, lost job, lost dream, children who are breaking our hearts, the rigors of old age. Here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider that whatever that distress is that you think of before you think of sin, whatever that distress is that God has sent it into your life specifically to drive you to call out to him. Because in fact, every distress we experience in this life is really just an echo coming down to us from the future. An echo 
of that greatest distress that we're going to face, and that's death itself. You, you know, the, re the reality is that there are lots of problems that we face in this life, lots of distresses that we face in this life that, that we can solve. We, we actually spend most of our days getting pretty good at solving life's problem, problems. And we don't seem to need Jesus for it. We, we, don't, need to, to, we don't seem to need God or, or Christianity for, for solving those, those, those little problems in life and even some of those big ones. But, but friend, you have no chance to solve life's capital P problem, death without Jesus. Allow your smaller problems, big as they are, to drive you to him so that he might begin to address your biggest problem. Now, as, as Christians, we need to remember that our God is a promise-keeping God. That, that, that's what has driven David to praise. It, it's, it's what elicits praise from the lips of Christ himself that God is faithful he keeps his promises. So Christian, if you are in Christ, then understand that God has entered into a covenant with you. A covenant in which by oath, he has confirmed his faithfulness. He will keep his promises. Jesus Christ's resurrection life is now in you. And, and that resurrection life coming through the Spirit is a guarantee that he's going to keep every other promise he's made to you. He's promised to never leave you. He's promised to, to allow nothing to separate you from him. He's, he's promised to deliver you from the sting of death, which is sin. So, so Christian, your refuge, your, your safe place in this life isn't a place. It's not a weapon. It's not a strategy. It's not a bank account. It's not a career. It's not a marriage. It's not a family. It's certainly not all those false safety places we go to to drugs, to alcohol, to relationships, to pornography, to romance, to the escape of entertainment, all of those, it's certainly not those. No, friends, your, your safe place, your refuge, your rock is a person. It is Jesus. You know, the experience of the Christian is that there is no safe place in this world. There's no age or stage free from dangers, toils, and snares. But there's a safe God who keeps all of his promises, who rescues us from death itself because he first rescued his son from death. Why does he rescue us? Why does he rescue us in the first place? As we've already seen, you know, resurrection life is the reward that Jesus has won because of his faithfulness to the Father. Death is what we've won because of our sin. But here's the good news of the gospel. The king does not simply rule over God's people. As I've been at pains to point out throughout this chapter, the king also represents God's people. Which means if you'll turn away from your rebellion, if you'll submit by faith to King Jesus, then God will not deal with you according to your righteousness, which of course you have none, and neither do I. But instead, God will deal with you according to Christ's righteousness because he now represents you. You 
will be in him and he in you. Your sin will be counted as his sin and his death for that sin will be counted as your death. His righteousness for his perfect life will be counted as your righteousness for your very imperfect life. And his new creation life will begin in you. Friends, this is the hope. This is the good news of the gospel. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I must say to you, there is nothing more important than you can consider. As David confessed there in this chapter, God saves the humble. But he brings the haughty low. Given all that God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ, for sinners like you and sinners like me, can you now understand why God is so offended by your pride? Offended at your idea that somehow, you know, when it all balances out, your life will be good enough. What an offense, not just to God's holiness, but to God's love, given the lengths that he's gone to display that love. But now you understand how humility attracts God's mercy, a humility that's willing to lay down all of my self-righteousness and admit I need a savior, I need a rock, I need to identify with this one because I have no other hope. And that doesn't cause God to despise you or think less of you, No, it causes him to delight over you. For Jesus is God's provision for you, if you will have him. Christian, here is the point of the doctrine of union with Christ by faith. God is pleased with you because you are in Christ by faith. And God is pleased with his son. God delights in you. Because by faith you are in Christ and God delights in his son. God hears your prayers. Because by faith you are in Christ. And God always hears the prayers of his son. He delights to hear them. He delights to answer them. God will never leave you because by faith you are in Christ and the Father will not be separated from his Son. God will resurrect you from the grave because, Christian, by faith you are in Christ and death has no hold on Christ. Your resurrection is guaranteed Because you are in Jesus. If you are in him, by faith. So so, so Christian, put aside your doubts. Grab hold of Christ. Christian, put put aside your your, your paltry righteousness, your your hope that that God will now be happy with you and will finally love you a little bit more because of your, your own righteousness, your own obedience. Put that aside and lay hold of Christ. God does not reward your righteousness. He rewards your faith, which lays hold of Christ in all of his righteousness. Jesus is your reward. Jesus is your life. Jesus is your song. He is your everything, or else he is nothing.
And Christian, because he is everything to us, then as a church, we are to the praise of his glory. You see, the, the reason for, for Christ's reign right now, today, though we cannot see him, the reason for his reign today through our lives as we submit ourselves to his word, sitting under his preaching, as, as we gather together as a body and, and declare to the world that, that we belong to him, we don't belong to the world, we belong to him, and we are submitted to him. The reason for all of this is so that God would receive praise and glory through us. We are Christ's trophies of grace. As the book of, of Hebrews instructs us, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Jesus is the foundation and the source for all of our praise together corporately. You, you understand, don't you? I hope you understand this. That it is not a function of music that, that leads to our praise. It's not the, the effective, casual banter of, of people up front that kind of loosen you up and get you in the mood. That's not the source of our praise. It's not, it's not an inspirational feeling that a worship leader produces in us. Friends, praise is the product of theology, of knowing the great danger that our sin has placed us in, of knowing the, the enemies of sin and death that we could not defeat on our own, and then knowing the great salvation that God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Your sin, think about this, in the language of, cha of chapter 22 of Second Psalm, your sin has been ground under Christ's feet as fine as the dust of the earth. Death cries out for mercy, but no one is listening in heaven. Do you want to feel as exuberant as David did when you gather with God's people for worship? Do, do you want to, to, to have that, that great desire to just shout out that God is rock, that Jesus Christ is my deliverer, that he's my savior, and I cannot even contain it? Do you want that? Stop waiting for people up here to produce it. Stop waiting for your favorite style of music to produce it. Use your heads and think. Give yourself to this. Think about the extremity of your sin and your danger. Let it grip you. And then think again of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for you. Friends, if you will bring these two thoughts together, much thought of the extremity of your sin and even more thought of the abundance of grace in Jesus Christ, then I promise you that will produce words and feelings and expressions of praise that far outstrip anything that I could create up here by getting the right band and the right music and the right people saying the right things. It is truth that produces praise, not music. Music's just a poor vehicle. We don't just bring glory to God through the praise of our lips. We bring glory to God through the praise of our lives. Lives lived in obedience to him as king. Lives lived in humble dependence upon Jesus Christ as our rock. Lives that forsake self-righteousness. 
and, in dis- and instead display the, the holiness that the Spirit alone can produce in us. Friends, what produces that kind of life? Jesus does. Jesus produces that life in us as we continue from where we began, crying out to him for deliverance, trusting in him to transform us into his image. You see, by grace, this song isn't just David's song. It's not just Jesus' song. It is our song. Someday, everybody will sing it. Someday, Everyone, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But we who are in Christ today, it is our privilege today to declare through our lips and through our lives that the Lord Jesus is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our our unworthy thoughts of you and of ourselves. Forgive us for for thinking too much of ourselves and too little of you. Forgive us for, for wanting to settle for too little. We ask, Father, that you would give us eyes to see this great salvation in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give us the, the ability that we do not have on our own to, to cry out to you, to cry out for your deliverance and then to receive it as you give it to us in Jesus Christ. And oh Lord, make our lives individually and as a church, make our lives to the glory of Jesus Christ and to the praise of his glory now and forevermore. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.